Today our gospel lesson comes from the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be reading from the 5th chapter, verses 13 through 20. Again, that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I invite you, if able, to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. <clears throat> you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored. It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under a bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I really like that. My wife picked that out, and as soon as I saw it, you know, I, I, I saw it as a nightlight, and I was like, that's pretty cool, but it took me a couple of looks until I realized it was also an inverted salt shaker, so pretty apropos. So today we are going to talk, at least at the beginning, about, obviously, salt and light, but before I get into that part, just sort of to catch you up to, this is the second of a three-part sermon series that I'm doing that was actually the most famous sermon that was ever given. Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And this was the greatest sermon ever. And you know how great it is because you could preach for weeks and weeks on end on all the details. Matter of fact, I have seen folks break out each beatitude into its own week and go through that. And so there's just, there's just a volume of stuff to go into it. I've chosen to keep to the lectionary and do it over three Sundays. The last week, again, was the Beatitudes, and we heard about the blessings, and I told you a little bit about how not only was it blessings, but it was really, if you look deeply at what those blessings were, what was implied by what was good and what was required, we see that it was sort of the opening act of how our relationship with God should be and how after the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve sinned and after we sinned, how some of these things have to be restored back unto us. And so we saw the Beatitudes not only as a way to live life in a good and healthy way, but a promise of the restoration. And so the middle part, the part about salt and light today, is actually was the hinge point in Jesus' sermon. When Jesus preached that first sermon to the Jewish ears that were there, to those that knew the scrolls of the Torah, that understood and were in synagogue, and, and this was less they had been brought up with and taught, they would have had that tie-in. They would have understood 
the blessings. They would have understood how joyful that was. It was the start, you know, they always tell you, start off good. If you got, if you got something heavy to lay on somebody, don't just come right out with it. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to start with something good and positive. And once you get folks sort of buying in on that, then you sort of come over the top and sort of hammer them. Well, actually, that is the very, very first part of this. When Jesus talks about the salt and the salt that has lost its saltiness. Now, of course, we today, and a lot of us probably use salt substitutes. My father had to be on a low-sodium diet. So, you know, there's many of us that you know, salt is something is not as special. But in those days, salt was one of the key and essential parts of life because it was one of the main spices that was widely distributed to people. It was something that would bring out the flavor in your food. It was something that would preserve your food because, again, they didn't have refrigeration and all of that. Matter of fact, salt was so important in this time period that very often the Roman legion was paid in salt. You can imagine that. It was a highly valued commodity. And so Jesus starts with this idea of salt, and he says, if salt loses its flavor, if salt loses its taste, if salt somehow gets corrupted, if it no longer can fit its purpose, then it is useless. Again, imagine, <clears throat> would anybody spend money on something that did not enhance the flavor of their food? Would anybody spend money on something that was useless, something that was barren something that was devoid of any goodness? Of course not. But, of course, Jesus isn't really talking about salt. Okay? I mean, he used salt, but <clears throat> what he's referring to here, and again, to these people who had heard him preach in other places, who had heard some of the arguments he had had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the and scribes, some of the conflict he had had with the established religious communities and their teachings. Basically, he was using the salt, and when he said this, everybody in the crowd knew who he was talking about. If there were any Sadducees or Pharisees there, you know people would have been looking like, that's you. You're bad salt. And so he throws that out, but it's more than just pointing out the deficiencies in the current religious establishment. Yes, they had taken God's law, and of course we read that in Isaiah today, you know, talking about the fasting, and God is actually trying the Israelite, the nation of Israel, and basically saying to them, you fast, and you put on ash and sit in sackcloth, and you know, you do all the, all the stuff just the right way, and you look good doing it. However, that is not the purpose of this, the purpose of this is not to look good doing it. The purpose is not to pretend like you're following me. It is not just to give lip service to what I have instructed you. So let me tell you, forget about fasting. Forget about putting ash in your hair. Forget about tearing your clothes. Forget about all these ritualistic things that you somehow think please me and understand if you truly want to please me, then you should be giving to the poor, not hindering them. If you really want to follow what I've taught you, you need to be out there clothing the naked, liberating the oppressed, doing the very things that Christ himself was doing with his miracles and his healings. He was preaching the good news to the poor. He was talking about liberation. He was even freeing people from physical, emotional, and demonic maladies that were 
keeping them out of the community. And so as he's saying this, he is definitely condemning the religious authority. Kind of a big hammer. Anybody that was there that was from that group would have been squirming. But not only them, but also those that followed him, those that went to synagogue, those who had been doing all the things that were prescribed by their leaders heard this, and it was a condemnation of them. But let's face it, if you're following somebody that is wrong, what does that make you? Wrong. And so Jesus is really, really hammering this point home with this, but it's not just for that. The reason Matthew included this in his gospel was, again, to recount what had been said, but Matthew was writing to a very specific group of people, and he is using this himself to remind them of those that had gone astray, those that had taken God's purpose, those that had taken religion and made it all about the act. Has anybody ever had a friend or a family member or somebody you know that doesn't come to church, that doesn't really buy into it? And they, I love when they say this. They go, I like God. I just don't like organized religion. You ever heard that? I always love when they say that. I said, well, well, come to my service. We're not all that organized. Um, and, of course, depending on where I was at uh, in the military, it was a little bit easier because I had rank, so I could actually order folks to do this. Not everybody, because there were a number of folks that came that outranked me. But still, inside the chapel, they would usually follow. And I would occasionally, to prove the point, say, all right, everybody get up and switch sides. I'm not going to do that here because I know in the civilian church, trying to get people to sit in a different seat. Well, that, that basically is just under walking on water, I believe, in the miracle status. But you see, the problem is, and this is always held true, there are many who profess faith, profess belief, and truly do believe, and yet if you look at their actions, their actions undermine the very thing that they hold to. And that's all of us. And so Matthew is reminding this first century church and everyone that's followed on by including this part. This was not just a condemnation of the establishment because if it was, we wouldn't need it in the Bible because, let's face it, we're not in synagogue. We don't fall under these folks anymore. So it was, one, to establish that they were wrong and the people that followed them would be wrong, but was also a warning for us to understand that if we too adopted these same practices, if we were religious for religious sake, if we played a good game, we talked a good talk, but when it came down to how we were living our lives, most folks wouldn't be able to tell us from those outside of here. sad state of affair. And so the first part of this is a warning, and it is expressly saying, if you are not doing that which you should be doing, if you are not living your life as I have prescribed, if you are not doing the things, not just for the sake of doing them, but for the glory of your Father in heaven, if you are not doing these things to honor Jesus Christ your Lord, if you are not doing the things that we have been taught, then you are wrong. You are salt that is saltless. You are corrupt. And the only thing to be done is to be thrown out and trampled upon. 
Again, the Beatitudes were a lot more fun, weren't they? But Jesus has a way of saying harsh things, but then also bringing it back to a center point. And so he doesn't just talk about the salt, but then he talks about this metaphor of the light. And of course, we know what light is. Light is that which dispels darkness. Has anybody ever been in absolute darkness? Complete and utter lack of light. When I was a Boy Scout, there was a cave that we went and camped in. And it came time to go to bed, and the scoutmasters came by and told everybody to turn off their lights. And when they did, you couldn't see your hand or your face. So, of course, what do uh, young scouts do when that happens? We pull our sleeping bag over our head, and we pull out our light and our comic book. And funny thing was, the scoutmaster always caught us. Because even that little tiny bit of light was enough to shine forth. He says, a city built on the hill cannot be hidden, especially if it's a city that has lights. You will see it from miles away. It will stand out. Then he talks about the lamp itself. When you light a lamp, when you light a candle, you don't then cover it up. And I'm not going to... That would be really bad. You don't hide that light. You let that light shine. Matter of fact, in those days, they would put it on a lampstand in the center part of the house, and the house was built and so that all the rooms opened up into a central area so that that one light would shine light into the various parts of the house. Now, we're not talking about sitting in your bedroom and read by light. It's not that bright. But it would be enough to see shapes. It would be enough to be able to move around. It would be enough to be able to operate in the darkness of the night. And so he gives them this example and says, and so this should be you with your good works, with the things that I have told you to do, taking care of, if we go back to Isaiah, the hungry, the unclothed, the oppressed, to take care of the widows and the orphans, the less fortunate, to do those very things that are acts of love that Jesus has been preaching and teaching all this time. To do these good works is the same as lighting a bright and brilliant light in an utterly dark night. People won't help but be able to see that. But again, it is not a light so that people will look at you and go, ah, what a great light. Again, when you put the lampstand up, the family didn't gather around the light and stare at it. That wouldn't happen for several hundred years until they finally invented the TV. Not exactly the example of light. No, that light was there so that other things could be done, so that you could live your life a little bit later into the evening. And so we are called to be this light, not for our own glory, not for our own showing off, not for our own pretenses, but we are called to be this light, shining in the darkness of this world, so that when people see us and see the way that we live our lives, they see the way that we treat other people, when they see the things that we do, they will automatically know. Intuitively, hopefully, that what we do, we do because of who we belong to. We do to honor our Father in heaven. And that we will not take the praise ourselves, but the praise will be ushered up unto him. And so Jesus, with this light metaphor, is then telling them, don't 
a tasteless song. Don't do these things which you know are wrong, but do these things which are right. Be light. Be pointing towards your Father in heaven. And that is a great moment. And then, as if just to mess with them, because at this point, Jesus has been talking about the scribes and the Pharisees in a very negative way. He has been allowing his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath. He has done things that they say that he ought to do. He himself has been accused of being sinful and against God's plan. And he has turned that around on these others. And so you could imagine in this community, these folks that have been oppressed, these folks whose lives have really been hindered by these religious authorities and these leaders, and in their minds they're thinking, well, it's about to change. It's going to get good. We're going to rewrite everything. Kind of like we did a couple hundred years ago. Remember? We used to be British. But we didn't like the whole king thing. Wrote a whole constitution. Now, it's not perfect. And we still have problems. But it's a lot better. And so they were kind of imagining that Jesus was about to rewrite the rules. He was about to flip the script. He was about to change things. And they couldn't wait for this. And they wrongfully imagined that some of these laws were going away. And then Jesus really shocked them. As they were leaning forward in their seats, as they were accepting, yes, we know that we have to live like light. We know that we have to be salty. We know that we have to be flavorful. We know that we have to do as we have been asked. But what have we been asked? And he says, now just so you know, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. And you can imagine at this point, people went, what? Not any of them? Can we bend them a little bit? You know, we got Ten Commandments, maybe seven. I'm not sure which ones they wanted to get rid of. But, you know, if you got a lot of rules and regulations, the natural thought pattern is, if I had less regulation, life would be better. I know I thought that growing up, although I have to admit that when I was a teenager, I wasn't very bright. You see... I grew up in a household where my father was very often heard to say, as long as you live under my roof, you will obey my rules. And of course, there wasn't a lot of option in the younger years, but when I turned 17, I graduated from high school, and I thought, well, we can fix this. I'm getting new rules. I'm moving out. The only problem is it turned out that to move out, it required money and a place to go. But again, I had a plan. And so in order to have this newfound freedom, I went down and talked with a recruiter and signed up for the United States Army. Went off to boot camp and I realized my dad's rules weren't so bad. <laughs> and quite frankly, he never threatened to do to me what some of those drill sergeants told me they would do if I didn't step lively. Now, I'm not sure if they really would have but I wasn't going to find out. You see, the people that were following Jesus, people that had come and continued to come, is because they had seen great things. They had heard great things. They were interested in this new idea, and they were hoping that he was going to radically transform. And yet, as he's 
is radically transforming the idea of what is right and wrong and how to live and how to respond. He's not liberating them from the law, but he is fulfilling the law. And he says, not one iota, not one letter, not one piece of a letter will be taken away until the heaven and earth pass away. This will remain until it is completely fulfilled, until everything is done. Because, of course, the prophets have told us there will come a day when what? When we don't teach one another. We don't have to come and gather and read Scripture together. We don't have to help edify one another on what it means to be a true Christian, a true follower. There will be a day when God will write His laws and His instructions on our hearts. And they will be part of us. And it will be just as natural as breathing. But until that day comes, Jesus promised them and us, I will not change one of them. And that can really sound like a heavy burden. And it's usually at this point in the sermon when I kind of get to this point that I suddenly bring the top part of the sandwich, the good part again. Not this Sunday. Matter of fact, I'll, war I'll put a warning out for next Sunday. It gets worse. Jesus hammered them in the middle at this hinge point in order for them to hear the truth. You see, the problem is he did not change the laws. He just changed the way they were interpreted. For many years, the Pharisees and Sadducees had taken the Ten Commandments. They had taken the words of the prophet. They had taken all these things, and in committee, they had come up with over 600 different rules. Now, that's not the law Jesus said that he was coming to keep, to fulfill. No, the law was God's law. The law was God's instructions. It was the Ten Commandments. It was the words of the prophet. It was everything that he spoke throughout the land of Galilee and beyond. God's law is perfect and holy. It is redemptive. It will help us to be established, not as we think in this world, but it prepares us to live in his world, in his kingdom. And so the middle part of this great sermon that Jesus preached comes with a lot of finger pointing and a lot of self-assessment. Are you salt worthy of the name? Do you bring flavor? Do you preserve life? Do you preserve community? What you bring wherever you are, is that the righteousness which Christ has created in us? Or has our salt waned a little bit? I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's completely tasteless, but let's face it, in our modern world, it truly is hard to be as salty as we were created to be. And is our light shining? And when our light shines, does it reflect on our glory? Does it reflect on our deeds? Does it point to our own selves and our own community? Do we pat ourselves on the back? Or do we shine forth in this world to point towards the glory of the Father? 
and simply acknowledge whatever, we, whatever good we do, whatever positives we have, it is simply that which God has provided us the ability to do and the opportunity in which to do it. And do we rejoice in the law and the prophets? Or like a really dumb teenage boy, do we seek somebody else's rules? Because God's rules are liberating. God's rules remove the yoke. God's rules allow us to be the best that we can be. God's rules allow us to be the salt and the light. They allow us to come to this table and partake of his sacrifice. They allow us to receive his Holy Spirit. They allow us to read his word and not only read it, but to understand it and to apply it. Now, not perfectly, not yet. But hopefully each day getting better. Now, I would pose in this, there is one part of it that kind of made me laugh a little bit when I thought of it. It says, how can salt, once it has lost its taste, once it's lost its saltiness, become salty again? In fact, is in and to itself, and by our own technology, it can't. But Christ Jesus can recreate us, renew us. In this case, reestablish our saltiness and our goodness. And it is only through His power, it is only through His work, that any of that is possible. So, friends, let us truly be the salt and the light, obedient unto his law. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, I give you thanks and praise for your word, for your guidance, for your love, and that though we ourselves are not worthy, you have called us worthy and made us such by your will and by your hand. Let us continue to Shine forth our light, your light, into the world so desperately in need. We pray this in all things in Christ's holy name. Amen.